Hello and welcome to the Parasmith Employment Podcast. My name is Tabitha Cunningham. I'm an associate in the employment team at Parasmith and I'm joined by my colleague Claire Merritt, who's a partner in the team. In today's podcast, we're going to be looking at employee recruitment and retention. We're seeing at the moment a real pressure on staffing caused by a mixture of the fallout from Brexit, obviously COVID, and now the great resignation where we are seeing lots of staff re-evaluating their lives, their work-life balances, and many are deciding it's the right time for a career change, either retirement, a new challenge, or, or something completely new. Recruitment and retention are therefore becoming real problems for employers. We'll look more at how to best retain your current employees in our next podcast. But for now, we want to look at ensuring that you're hiring the right people in the first place, which is one of the first things to get right in employee retention. You're failing to get the right people through the door and they're unlikely to stay long term. So we're going to look at best practice for recruitment and how to ensure you're competitive in the market. So, Claire, first question for you. What do you think the most important things to get right are when you're looking to recruit for a role? Thank you, Tabitha. Um, I, I think it's interesting because well, I'm going to come at this from a lawyer's angle. So we're going to be talking about best practice, um, about how to get it right when you're recruiting. Obviously, there are tools and mechanisms and businesses out there which will f- help you find the right pool of candidates. Um, so I'm not going to deal with that in uh, particularly or even look at the kind of the diversity elements of getting the right pool of candidates. What I think is really important is about making sure you have your best practice um, in place. And in particular, I think one of the most important things is around your contracts of employment. So if you haven't already, there were some big changes and some big reviews that needed to happen to contracts back in April 2020. And I know we were all incredibly busy with something called COVID at the time. But that did change the format of contracts of employment. So they needed to contain more information. And in a nutshell, that information was about paid leave, benefits, and was also around um, training and development. So the contracts need to be explicit around those things. So therefore, shout about your benefits package, shout about your paid leave, shout about your training and development. It needs to be there in the contract anyway. So my view is let's talk about it in advance when you're recruiting. If you don't feel particularly confident about those packages, review them um, and also put them explicitly into your contracts of employment. Because what I've been seeing or hearing anecdotally is that often candidates have two offers, maybe three offers. They're going to be looking at those contracts of employment and comparing them. And if you're not shouting about your enhanced benefits, whatever they may be, then they're going to look at elsewhere and they're going to look um, at other employers. And another important thing to think about is historically, um, contracts of employment, you had a number of weeks to get those out to candidates. So candidates often started, didn't know what terms and conditions they were on. But now that's a day one right. And what we're advising our clients is actually to get those contracts out at offer stage. So a really early stage, shout about how great your um, benefits, your paid leave and your training is so that the candidate can be really informed about where they're joining. So, um, Tabitha, um, how do you think you ensure recruitment practices reflect best practice? 
I mean, for me, I think it's really going back to the basics, which is really focusing at the beginning on the role that you are filling and the requirements of that role. I think too often we see um, employers replacing like for like and saying, well, we've, we've just got this role. We used the same job description last time. You know, we, we fling it out there and we don't really consider what we're looking for. It, we need to focus on the, the role requirements, what they're going to be doing day to day, and then looking at a person specification based on, on the actual requirements of the role. Um, obviously, with job advertisements and the recruitment process, we're really looking to be mindful of discrimination claims. And one of the um, easy mistakes that we often see is kind of outdated language in job descriptions, you know, saying that we need a recent graduate. Well, why do we need a recent graduate, you know, is that a genuine requirement or is that just what you've had before? And um, you know, saying that we need high levels of experience when actually it, it's an entry level role. And I think there's a lot more of a feeling now that people pick these things out online and kind of criticize job adverts where they say they require experience and which just don't match the actual requirements. Um, we also then if you are um, specific about your, your job description, about who you're looking for, that also helps you identify where you're advertising to make sure you are getting that broad range of candidates. And I think once you've got your, your job, job advertisement right, we're then looking at how do you make your selection process as, as objective as possible. And again, I think people have higher expectations now and will be judging you on your recruitment process. So we're not necessarily just looking at an interview with one person um, that goes off piece, you know, we need to be thinking about, well, do we need a panel of interviewers? If you still like a traditional interview, you need to be using set interview questions that are actually relevant to the role so that you are assessing the candidates for your benefit, but also you're showcasing how you manage things internally. Um, if you use a selection process, again, it, it does need to be relevant to the role. Um, I think we also just need to be very careful that we, we don't do anything completely outdated um, and ask inappropriate questions, which unfortunately we do see quite often, I think, stick even more in candidates' minds. You know, lots of younger women still have horror stories of being asked about their plans for a family in interviews. Um, you know, it's often people are still asking for, for medical information at a too early stage so it's really looking at your recruitment practice to ensure that it's up to date and it's going to showcase you as well as getting the best um, information you can about the candidates that you're interviewing I mean Claire what do you think the big risks are in the current climate in relation to recruitment I think the well, the short-term risks are, of course, not getting the right people, getting the wrong mix and, and all of those things, which I think are very, very visible to anyone who is trying to recruit at the moment. I think the long-term risk is something that, as a lawyer, I'm envisaging is going to happen over the next five years or so, which is a real pressure on wage inflation. And the wage inflation issue there is around costs for an employer. Obviously, that's there's an issue there, um, and that's going to bite into bottom line and, and profitability of any organisation. Or ultimately, if you're a not for profit, you know what you're actually investing then in in the future. Um, but equally, there are real risks around gender pay gap. Yeah. It seems, although the statistics aren't there yet, that anecdotally, the um, movement of staff is more dominated by male uh, people moving rather than females, whether that's true or not. I think a lot of females, anecdotally, again, we need the statistics to back this up, are leaving the workplace now after the pressures of the pandemic. 
whether that's because of childcare or caring responsibilities, etc. And therefore, that's going to make the gender pay gap worse. So you could be envisaging actually having maybe a great pay gap that's been getting better for a number of years suddenly start dipping again and justifying and looking at that. So I think gender pay gap is an issue. And of course, I can hear you saying to me, so what? What happens? There's no penalties for gender pay gap. Well, the ultimate penalty there is around, again, failing to recruit in the future because candidates are looking at your gender pay gap. Um, and of course, the implication that there's an equal pay issue as well. So again, having to go to market, let's say you have five salespeople and actually to fill the last role, you've had to pay a significant increment above that. If there's a male-female discrepancy there, um, or even a, a female-male, actually, it's, it's comparing against the genders, um, you can have some real issues. So what I would suggest is I know at the moment it's really difficult. Paying more is obviously an easy way to secure that candidate that you really need, but long term you need to keep that under review. I think it's there's definitely a, a push towards more openness. I think with everything being available on the internet for everyone to see, I feel there's more pressure actually when listing a job that people want to know what that salary is before they apply. And actually that then brings these issues to the forefront, doesn't it? Because if you're having to put a salary range on your job advertisements, you know, that's going to raise more questions with existing staff as well. So it's a bit of a catch-22 at the moment, isn't it? But I, I wonder whether that will be more of the norm that people expect more openness in relation to salary as other countries do, um, you know, whereas typically we've been quite reticent. I, I think that you, that's entirely right because... Um, we're, there's a real pressure to be more open about salaries and historically that the confidentiality of salaries has been uh, quite negatively impacting women who tend to be less confident in salary negotiations mm -hmm. and that's what perpetuates or one of the reasons that perpetuates the gender pay gap so I think it is going to be an interesting five years as candidates push for more disclosure about um, salaries um, and the consequences of that. Mm. So, Tobiatha, um, quite a big question, uh, really. What do you think is um, the best practice around onboarding of staff and how to make that really make them fit? Uh, stay sorry yeah I mean again I think it's really in the planning obviously if we've got the right person coming to your organization it's just keeping that positive momentum going you know we need to be look at how we support them um, and actually front loading that support is is the best thing to do because often we see minor issues where there's a misunderstanding or they're not quite clear on procedure can quickly turn into lack of confidence and and bigger concerns so I think it's looking um, at how your managers are supporting new employees employees and how your induction process works now because obviously we've now got employees that might be coming to work for you remotely they might have a manager that's working remotely and it's just looking at how you're going to keep in touch with someone new um, I think we often see even with probationary periods that are quite common there's a kind of flurry of work at the end of the probationary period where we suddenly think oh actually this employee hasn't been 
performing. Um, of course, that is manageable, but it's much better if we are sitting down to review how things are going on an ongoing basis, rather than getting towards the end of the probationary period and saying, well, actually, we're not happy with all of this. And it transpires, you know, that there's been a communication problem or, or a lack of training or a lack of something. Um, so I think remembering that your investment in the recruitment process doesn't stop when they come in the door, you know, that is the start. Um, and, and working to, to get those people using their skills for your business, um, I think will encourage them to stay um, and, and be with you long term. I also think there's an interesting point there around probationary periods. There used to be this real feeling that a probationary period was the the employee's opportunity to demonstrate that they mm. can, um, you know, that they can um, stay and, and, and be productive and, and a, a great person and a performer in the team. I think now the probationary period is very much a, a trial for the employer as well. Mm. So, uh, you know, we're seeing a lot more people leave during probationary period because they just don't like the culture, the ethos, the job mm. wasn't what they were sold. And because there's such a strong recruitment market, they can hand in their week's notice, which is generally mm. the notice under a probationary period and off they go. Yeah, I think you're right. It's a, um, an interesting time for employers um, but I, I think if you're putting the effort into your recruitment you're going to be best placed to, to get those candidates and then to retain them exactly well thank you for joining us um, I hope you found it useful uh, our next podcast will be looking at strategies to improve your employee retention rates for your existing employees so join us for that um, if you want to discuss that more with us if not you can find further information on our website www.parasmith.co.uk Thank, Thank you very you. much.